So in Sunday school, Christian has been walking us through different types of thought. So we started off with some modern thought and how that was, uh, you know, we wanted to reach for what is true. And we thought that, that humanity could build a perfect society, a perfect utopia. But that all fell apart in World War I when we realized that we couldn't just logic and reason our way through this war. And there were millions of lives lost. And that developed, from that, developed postmodern thought. You know, this I, the, they felt let down by that modern thought. So we, we started to think in what was called postmodern thought. And that started to develop into contemporary thought. One of the defining characteristics in postmodern thought that is car- carried on through into contemporary thought is this idea of not whether, or the concern of not whether something is true, but whether or not it's useful. So you can see it in our society today. You can see people that don't really care if something is true or not because truth has become subjective. People think that truth is defined by the person interpreting the facts. So truth is interpreted or is subjective. So our thought no longer, our culture no longer cares about what is true but what is useful? Is this thing useful to me or is that thing useful to me? Not whether or not this thing or that thing is true. And this thought has started to infiltrate all kinds of areas in our life, including how we view church. And so we no longer attend a church in our culture. I'm not saying you personally. But, but in our culture, we view church no longer on whether or not it's truth and no longer whether or not God has commanded us as Christians to meet together. But we begin to attend church based on whether or not it's useful to us. Will it heal my marriage? Will it make me a better, better parent? And I do think church will do those things. But that's not why we attend church. Will it make me feel better? Will it give me better relationships? I can't tell you how many people have left church because they didn't feel like they had close enough relationships in that church, even though they never reached out to anyone else. And so the idea is, is church useful to me? And so we come to church and we stay and we play as long as it suits us, as long as it fulfills my needs. We see it almost as an extracurricular activity. And something that's nice, as long as it feels nice, as long as it feels good to me. And when it no longer is useful to us, or when it gets in the way of something that might be more useful or more fun, church becomes second place. Throughout the Bible, there are many metaphors used to describe the church. There's all kinds of different metaphors, a building, a body. But the most often used metaphor is that of warfare. And this warfare metaphor helps remind us that being a part of a church, being a follower of Christ, is not a game, and it's not just something you attend because it's useful or because you get something out of it, something that you can give and then you can take, where the outcome really doesn't make a difference. But church and living out a life dedicated to Christ 
is something with major eternal life consequences. That's why it's considered warfare. Because it is the most important aspect of our life. It's not about whether or not it's useful, though it is. It's not whether or not you get an emotional feeling out of it, although most of the time you should. But this world is engaged in cosmic warfare. And God has given a command to Christians everywhere. And that is what we will talk about today as we finish our series, Better Together, a study through Ephesians. As we've been walking through this, if you want to turn to Ephesians 6, we're going to go 10 through 24 today. As we've been walking through this, we started off with the, with, with the first three chapters. We really focused in on these are the theological truths. And the three, theological truths of the first three chapters are what's going to impact the rest of the, of the letter. So starting in chapter 4, we get into the application. And through that application, he starts off kind of contrasting this is how you used to live. This is how you are to live now because you are because of the first three chapters, the truths found in the first three chapters, that you are a son or a child of God, that he has made you a new creation, that we are all equal together, that we actually can come together and build one another up as a body, as a building gets built up. Because of that, we come together and we used to live this way where it was every man for itself, where we would use one another, but now we are to live in a whole new light. And then he starts getting into more uh, practical application and he talks about how when we are being controlled by the Spirit of God, there are three outcomes. The first one is that worship no longer becomes about what I feel, how I feel about it. How many of us have d judged how great worship was based on my emotion to that worship. Man, it was so good. I just felt so good. You know, it just encouraged my heart so much. That's why worship was good that day. Instead of saying, you know what? We really glorified God. And so worship was amazing. But when we're being controlled by the Spirit, worship is no longer about how I feel with worship. It's about how I glorify God. And so that's the first part of being controlled by the Spirit. When, when worship is all about my emotion, that reveals I'm not actually being controlled by the Spirit. The second part is thankfulness. So when we're being controlled by thankful or by the Spirit, we are thankful in all things. Not that we're thankful for everything, but in all circumstances in our lives, we can find something to be thankful to God about. So when life hits you hard with stuff that just doesn't make sense and you're on the brink of total collapse, you can still thank God. You can still find something to be thankful about. That's being controlled by the Spirit. When you are a bitter person and you can't find anything to be thankful about, it reveals that you're not being controlled by the Spirit. And then finally, the last outflow of being controlled by the Spirit is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Cooperating with one another. Yielding to one another. And then from there, he develops these very practical house codes. House codes were, uh, were common in uh, ancient Rome. Many philosophers or people that were involved in ethics would develop these house codes. And it was basically like, based on this philosophy, based on this ethic, 
This is how this should play out in your house. Now, these are all based on this idea of mutual submission, of yielding, cooperating to one another. But we talked quite a bit out about how if we're all just yielding to each other, it produces chaos in this world, right? If you went to, if you were driving through an intersection and one car was supposed to yield and the other car was not supposed to yield, but everybody decided to yield, there would just be one big traffic jam. In order to properly yield, you need rules. That's what these house codes are all about. These rules on how to submit to one another. And so he walks us through these very practical uh, ways to yield to one another. And each one of these will reveal, if you are not fulfilling your role within this, it, it reveals that you're not actually being controlled by the Spirit. So wives, submit to your husbands. A wife that's not submitting to her husband, as in the Lord, is not being controlled by the Spirit. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? By dying for her. Husbands, you are called to put your wife's needs ahead of your own in every circumstance. A husband that is not willing to do that, it reveals that you're not being controlled by the Spirit. Children, obey your parents. Now notice, there's no disclaimer there. It's not like, children, obey your parents unless they're being unreasonable. Children, obey your parents unless you don't feel like it that day. It's children, obey your parents in the Lord. And he gives us three reasons. Number one is because you're a believer. Because you're a believer, you should obey your parents. Number two is because it's right. And number three is because there is a promise that goes along with it. Not children, not obeying your parents reveals that you are not being controlled by the Spirit. And then he continues, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and training and correction of faith. Fathers, when you are provoking your children to anger, when you are not training them in the faith, it reveals that you're not being and then he gets into uh, slaves and masters. That slaves should obey, but also masters should do the same. In those, day, in those days, it would have been preposterous to think that a master could be limited in his authority, or a husband could be limited in his authority over a wife or over his children or over his master. And yet, Paul outlines that there are limits for those in authority. And that if you are in authority, your job isn't to rule and lord over someone, but to serve them. And that's when he gets to verse 10, finally. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So here we are. We've got Paul writing a letter to a church that he spent two years with. He spent two years helping develop this church, planting this church, growing this church. Two years instructing them in the faith. And then he goes back to Jerusalem and he's arrested. He spends time in Caesarea in a a, horrible prison in Caesarea Maritima, and then he's shipped out to Caesar, and while he's waiting his trial with Caesar, he's in chains. He's actually literally chained to a Roman soldier, and he's writing this letter with affection, with love to the church at Ephesus, and while he's sitting there and he's getting ready to finish it out, he might look up at the soldier who's got him chained, and he starts to develop this idea of putting on the armor of God. Now, in those days, there was nothing more threatening than the Roman military. Nothing with more power than the Roman military. So he looks up, and he sees, and he begins to make a metaphor. But he starts this off with, finally, be strong. This term, finally, really means from now on. So we've studied, we've looked at all these different truths, how God has given us spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. We have examined how we're supposed to act based on those blessings. The finally means from now on, and it's a call to arms. To know that you are involved in the greatest battle to ever take place. There is an enemy that wants nothing more than to steal and to kill and destroy. And this enemy has declared war on you. Now, throughout history, if you're a history buff, what do you typically study? You study wars, right? Because wars help define history. And you study all these different impactful wars. But there is no war, no battle that is more impactful and greater than the spiritual war that is taking place throughout human history. So with that in mind, because there is a war going on, because he has outlined these truths, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The be strong here is a command, but it's also a command that is in the passive, meaning you can't actually make yourself stronger, but God will make you stronger. All you have to do is put on the strength. So he's kind of looking at this 
at this Roman soldier and he's thinking about it much like his armor. You can't make that, the, the, the soldier could not make that armor stronger. But he could put that strong material on. That's what he's commanding us here. He's not saying for you personally to make yourself stronger. To put on the strength that the Lord will give you. And he clarifies it even more. Be strong in what? Not physically strong, but be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Whose might? The Lord's might. God's might. It is God's might. It is God's strength that we should be operating in. When we try to operate in our own strength, when we try to operate it in our own might, that is when we fail. That is a, a try-harder religion. Okay, I've messed up. Next time, I'm just going to try harder. So think about that sin that gets you every time, that sin that just always creeps in, whether it's lust, whether it's anger, whether it's yelling at your children, whether it's disobedience to your parents, and you're feel, you, you've messed up, you've re- wrecked the day, and you start to think, Okay, tomorrow I'm going to do better. Tomorrow I'm going to try harder. Tomorrow I will accomplish it. And you're doing it in your own strength. And what happens the next day? You yell at your kids. You disobey your parents. You lust after a woman. And you do the same thing. You feel shame. You feel guilt. You you feel like an utter failure. And so what do you do? Tomorrow I'm going to try harder. And that's operating out of your own strength. We're not commanded to operate out of our own strength, but out of the strength of the Lord. Now the question is, how do you do that? And I think he's going to outline that for us. That's what the rest of this is all about. He's outlining how we stand in the strength of the Lord. So how do we stand in the strength of the Lord? By putting on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the devil is a schemer. He's a master manipulator. If we are working in our own strength, we will always fail because we can't do it on our own. The armor is how we stand in the strength of the Lord. So we'll get to that. For we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So verse 12 is basically outlining who we are fighting against, who this cosmic war is all is, is with. And that is not against other people. I think that's important for us to realize. We oftentimes can get can easily get caught up in culture wars and see other people as the enemy. Other people that may actually be attacking your faith. So it's easy to see them as the enemy because they seem as they because they act as aggressors. But it's important for us to see them not as the enemy but as hostages. Those people who have absolutely embraced transgendered ideology and wants to see the church demolished. They're not the enemy. They're a hostage of the enemy. 
it's so important to understand because how you treat a hostage and how you treat the enemy is entirely different. So they're not the enemy. But who is the enemy? So we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against other humans. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And then he clarifies it even more. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now this term wrestle means uh, it means to grapple. It's like close hand-on-hand combat. And then he defines this enemy, the spiritual forces of evil. That's who the enemy is. It's Satan and his demons. So Satan has declared war on humanity because Satan cannot hurt God. Satan cannot overpower God. Satan cannot kill God. So instead, he will go after something that God loves, and that is you. When I was a kid, uh, I got angry at my mom. uh, And I knew I couldn't do anything really to hurt her. You know, I was just a little weak kid. I wasn't going to be able to hurt my mom. And I knew I'd get in a lot of trouble if I did. So I decided to go after something she loved. Now, uh, we, we have kind of a larger family, and so if you have a larger family, you know that taking family pictures, it can be an issue. Uh, so we didn't get a lot of family pictures, but we did have this one. So I snuck into her room, and I took some scissors, and I cut that family picture up. Now I ended up getting in trouble for that. We don't need to get into all that. But, but the whole point of the story is because I knew I couldn't do anything against her, I went after something that she loved. And that is how Satan operates. He knows he can't go against God. He knows he can't play a move against God. And so what does he go after? He goes after God's original artwork, original masterpiece. And that is you. So he would love to see you ineffective at the least. At the very least, he'd love to make it so that your Christian walk, so that your ability to share the gospel would be ineffective. But at the most, what he would really like to see is you dead. Tormented and dead. That's what the enemy wants. That's what the enemy desires. So we need to realize that this is a war that is being waged. It is a cosmic war. And it's easy to get caught up in culture wars to think that if we win the culture war, we've made it. But we're not at war with other humans. The war is a cosmic war between Satan and God, and we have a part to play. So once again, that word wrestle means to grapple, and it means close hand-to-hand combat. So we need to recognize that we're not lobbing missiles from afar, but that there is a very real enemy who hates God, and because he, because you are God's masterpiece, he hates you as well. And so then he gives us a therefore. Because the devil is a schemer, because he is a master manipulator, and because he is in close hand-to-hand combat against you, many of us don't even recognize that, but because he is in hand-to-hand combat against you, you therefore need to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now this term stand is pretty important if you just within this these couple verses we've already read it three times and it means to not give up ground 
So therefore, because there is this cosmic war, we need to address to dress appropriately. Could you imagine going to war without any equipment? How how long could a military stand with no equipment? I think you've heard the saying, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. That's kind of what Paul is saying here. It's kind of what Paul is saying. There is a war between good and evil. You must know who the enemy is, and you must dress accordingly. So stand firm. Because of all this, stand firm. Don't give up any ground. What's important about this stand firm, this idea of standing firm, this idea of not giving up any ground, is that Jesus has already had the victory. He has gained the ground. He has transformed you. He has made you a new creation. So your job in this isn't to have a victory over Satan. Your job in this is to stand firm in the newness of the creation that God has given you. This is a defensive stance. God has given you the victory. In the end, you will be victorious. So don't let Satan steal the joy of your victory or I should say, of God's victory. The joy of this victory is living as the new creation. So you are a new creation. There's nothing that Satan can do to take that newness away. There's nothing that Satan can do to reverse that. You are a new creation. You've been sealed with the Spirit. You are secure in your salvation. So what does Satan want to do? He wants to steal the joy of your victory. So you need to stand firm in that victory. And as you stand firm, you actually grow and you mature in that victory. You grow and you mature in that creation that God has made you to be. So he gives it again. Stand firm, or stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. So now he gets into how to dress. So he's given us this thing of how we can live, of of what we are to do, how we are to stand how we can be strengthened by his might. And now he gets into the the clothing metaphor. So the first part is standing firm in, or uh, sorry, standing firm, stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth. The first thing he mentions is the truth. This is the foundation. It all starts with what we find in the first three chapters, the theology that he outlines in the first three chapters. That's what we're to stand in when there are lies that you tend to believe Go back to the truth. Anytime our, our perception of the truth is off, now I want to make that clear that there aren't multiple truths, right? That was the problem that the postmodern thought had, is that, that there are multiple truths, and so you can't even believe in a truth. So we don't have a truth, we have perception, or we have your truth and my truth, but there's no real truth, and we would reject that idea. But I would say that there are perceptions of truth, right? We are fallible people with fallible perception. And so my perception of truth can be off. And when my perception of truth is off, that's when I begin to behave like the old person. So anytime our perception of truth is off, we need to get regrounded in the truth from Scripture. So when I'm act, when I'm engaged in sin, when that sin creeps back into my life, 
instead of having this try-harder theology, what I need to do is recognize that that sin has crept into my life because my perception of truth is off. For example, we constantly hear this term, so-and-so made me angry. I think that is a wrong perception of truth. And what I mean by that is, no one can make you angry. You have anger in your heart. Someone can give you opportunity to let that anger out. So when you say, so-and-so made me angry, really what's going on here is that you are an angry person, you have anger in your heart, and now this person has given you opportunity to let that anger out. So what you need to do, instead of saying, instead of blaming someone else for your anger problem, we need to come back to the truths of Scripture and, and reorient our perception of truth. Another example might be that you might feel devalued. You might not be sure of who you are, of, of what your identity is. And so because of this, you get entrapped in some type of gender fluidity type of sin. The problem isn't with truth. The problem is with your perception of truth. And so what's the solution? The solution is to go back to the first three chapters and secure your identity in Christ. Because you're having an identity crisis. So we see that over and over again. That's how the truth plays out. That's how our perception of the truth can, can wreak havoc in our lives. And so we need to come back to the truth over and over and over again. So we first the first step is putting on the belt of truth. The next one is having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate had protection on both the front and the back. It protected all major organs. And it's important for us to know that it is not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ that we put on. So what he's saying is the major protections we have against Satan's schemes is reminding ourselves of the righteousness that God has given us. It's not mine, and this is important. Because if I earned it, then I blew, Then when I blow it, then all the lies that Satan tells, that I'm just a raggedy old sinner, that God doesn't even love me, why even try? If it's based on my righteousness, he's right. If we go back to that works-based righteousness, he's right. I blew it. I'm no good. But if it's based on the righteousness of Christ, that God has given me, then the lies of Satan are wrong. So when you mess up, when you yell at your kids, when you lust after the woman, when you cuss, when you disobey your parents, when you have an outburst of anger, even if you get out and you get drunk or you get high, you're still covered in God's righteousness. You don't have to earn it. And earning it just doesn't work. But you can remind yourself of the righteousness God has placed on you. I once knew this girl. She was a, she was almost a teenager, not quite a teenager yet. And anytime she would mess up, she would feel this incredible amount of guilt and shame. And so she would go to her mom and she would tell her, No, mom, I think I just need a spanking. 
And they developed this spank the guilt out mentality. And so her and her mom together would, would get together. And anytime she felt guilty, anytime she felt shame, she would come to her mom and her mom would spank the guilt and the shame out. She's still trying to earn her righteousness. That was a problem. And it repeated over and over again. And part of the problem with that is you're going to always mess up. So you're going to go back to your mom and get spanked all the way through your 50s? When I mess up, am I going to go to Colorado and say, hey, mom, it's time, spank the guilt out. That's a works-based righteousness that just doesn't work. So what her mom needed to do instead was explain to her that that there is no shame and there is no guilt in Christ. That when you stand firm in who He has made you to be, she needed to go back to the first three chapters and reread those over and over again. So he continues, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So you don't put on shoes just to hang out in the house, right? You put on shoes because you're active. And different shoes have different purposes. So when I go biking, I wear biking shoes. And even within mountain or biking, there's different types of shoes, right? You've got clipless, which don't make any sense because you're clipped in, but they call them clipless. So, you, you know, if you're riding like cross country, you might want to put on those shoes. But you wouldn't want to wear a clipless when you're going to the dirt jumps. There you wear flats, right? So even within mountain biking, different shoes have different purposes. But you also don't want to wear your clipless if you're going for a run. In fact, you instead might put on running shoes. But would you wear those running shoes if you're going for a rim-to-rim hike? You might put on hiking boots. But you're not going to put on hiking boots if you're going on a sprint track and field, you wear a lot of hiking boots for your sprinting. Run some hurdles with some hiking boots. Yes! That's going to get you a state champion, right? No! You wear different shoes for different purposes. The Roman soldiers didn't put their shoes on just to hang out in the fortress, hoping that the enemy wouldn't attack. So their shoes that they would wear for warfare were made of leather, and they had metal spikes on the bottom. Now, these metal spikes serve two purposes. They could be used as a weapon in close combat, which was interesting for me because I'd always heard that the sword of the Spirit is the only offensive weapon. But actually, the gospel, it can be an offensive weapon as well here because they would use it as a weapon in close combat. But then the second purpose was to give traction when they were hiking some horrible terrain, or when enemies were pushing back, they could stick those spikes into the ground and not move. So for your shoes, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We put on the gospel to be active, not just to hang out in the church and never connect with unbelievers, hoping that someday someone might just come through those doors, and hoping that that the enemy will just avoid the fortress. The gospel gives us traction to stand our ground, to stand firm in the position that Christ has given us. So I think it's important to highlight how he describes the gospel. It's not the gospel of shame and guilt. 
I think you can win culture wars through shame and guilt. You can you win culture wars through belittling other people. But you don't advance or you don't stand your ground in cosmic wars with that strategy. In the cosmic war, you stand your ground with the gospel of peace. So gospel, to begin with, means good news. That's simply what it means. And peace means to have a harmonious relationship. So the gospel of peace, then, would first start off with this recognition that every single one of us has rebelled against God at some point. Whether it's a small rebellion or whether it's a large rebellion, every single one of us has said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. Forget you, God, you know, you've told me to obey my parents, but forget you, God, because they're being unreasonable, so I'm not going to obey them today. I know you've laid out these principles for me to live my life, but forget you, God, you don't understand the post-modern thought that I'm living in. And because of this rebellion, every single one of us have been separated from God and deserve eternal separation from God, which is eternal death. Every single one of us has deserved it because every single one of us has rebelled against God at some point in our life. But the good news goes beyond that. The good news is that because God loves you with such a great love, because you are his masterpiece, because you are his original artwork, he didn't just let you alone to your own rebellion and death, but he came to this earth and he paid the price so that you could have a harmonious relationship with him. You could be reconnected with your creator, the one who knows you better than you know yourself. And all you have to do to have that harmonious relationship, to bring back, to be brought back into peace with God, is to believe and, and trust his work. And in all honesty, I think this is what people are really searching for. This is what people really desire. That is why our culture seems so crazy right now. Because people are searching. They, they, they have been separated from their creator. The very purpose to which they have been created for was to be in a harmonious relationship with their creator. And they have been separated that from that by their own rebellion. And because people have been separated and they don't even know where to search, they are searching for all kinds of stuff. They're trying to fill that hole with all kinds of stuff. And the enemy has done a good job of convincing them that Christians don't have the answer. And he's done a good job of convincing them that we don't actually have a gospel of, of peace, but a gospel of guilt and shame. He's done a good job of convincing them that it's not about grace, but it's about works and try harder religion. And so out of desperation, they turn to all kinds of different things like drugs, self-mutilation, pornography, and even totally changing their identity. So instead of guilting and shaming, we bring the good news of peace with God that every single one of us can be truly fulfilled by having peace with God, the whole purpose to which we were created. That God can take us wherever we are, whoever we are, wherever we've been, that he can make us new, and that all the truths from the first three chapters can apply to you and me. That we are saved by his grace, and that we are his workmanship, his original masterpiece. 
That is the gospel of peace that gives us traction. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So the Roman shield would be about from the shoulders to the knees. It was made of wood and it was wrapped in leather. And it had a little curve to it. And together, when they were in formation, they would stand together. They would be really tight. And it would be pretty much this immovable wall. And so as they would approach the enemy, I mean, if you were an enemy of Rome at that time, you would have dread when you saw that immovable wall. And your only hope was to dip a dart or an arrow in pitch and light it on fire and shoot it. And you would hope that it would penetrate through the leather into the wood and catch the wood on fire. And that might give you a little bit of hope. But even then, you would have to make sure you burnt up enough of those shields. And it almost seemed hopeless if you were the enemy. So our shield, the shield that we take up, is the shield of faith. It's trusting in the truths of Scripture. It's not just, it's going on a simple belief, and it's going to trusting, fully trusting the truths that God has laid out. The enemy is constantly throwing lies at you, trying to convince you that God doesn't love you, that God hasn't given you all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm, that your way is better, that you can give in to sin just a little bit, it won't really hurt. And that God doesn't care at all. And your job is to believe the truth that God has given you. And when you believe the truth, that extinguishes all the lies that the enemy is firing at you. He goes on, and take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet would protect your head. Once a soldier's head was God, well, that's the end of the soldier, right? So the helmet of salvation is constantly reminding yourself that salvation is a gift from God. He has done it, and he has sealed you with the Spirit until it is fully complete. You don't have to worry about losing it. So putting on the helmet of salvation is just reminding yourself that God has saved you. This changes our attitude when we mess up. When we mess up, we don't have to go back to try harder. We know that God has saved us. Our salvation is not on the line. And then he goes on with, and the word of the Spirit, or the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So the word of God is an offensive weapon. It's an offensive piece of equipment. Hebrews says it is sharper than a two-edged sword. So it can change hearts. It can convict. So often we think that it is our job to do the convicting. That we have to be the one to change someone's mind. And so we think that we need to be witty and we need to be winsome. And if I don't have the right apologetic, if I don't have the right argument, then I better not even engage. But it is really the word of God that changes hearts. After all, my words are fallible. I make mistakes. But God is infallible. God's word does not make mistakes. And more than that, the Spirit uses the word to do the work. That is why it's the sword of the Spirit. It's not my sword. I'm not the one in control of it. By taking it up, I am reading it, I am memorizing it, I am submitting to it. I'm using it to build my worldview 
the lens through which I will see the world. And he goes on, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So praying at all times, I think this kind of sums up the attitude. I'm sure after putting on all that equipment together, making an unstoppable wall, the soldier would feel, well, unstoppable. So the attitude that Paul is giving us is one of prayer at all times. After putting on all that equipment, our attitude should be one of prayer. Prayer reveals our dependence on Christ. It's not just petitioning him, although it can be that, but it is really admitting that we need him. That's why prayer is so important. It reveals our dependency upon him. So our attitude as we put on all of this equipment is one of total dependence upon him. We are to stand strong in the strength of his might. How are we to do that? It's to go back through what he has already done for us, to stand firm in what he has already done, to remind ourselves of what he has already done. And one of the ways that we do that, the attitude that we have to do that, is that we become totally dependent upon him. Now what's interesting as well is throughout this uh, throughout this uh, imperative to pray, he, say, he asks for supplication for himself. Now, once again, Paul is in chains. He's in prison. And what's interesting here is he doesn't ask for his release. He doesn't say, petition God on my release. Instead, he says, petition God that I would be, have the boldness to preach the gospel. It reminds me of a story I read about this young man in the Philippines who uh, had just graduated seminary, and if you're familiar with the Philippines, there are a lot of Muslim terrorists there. And he felt like God was calling him to, to share the gospel with these Muslim terrorists, but his problem was he didn't even know where to go to reach these Muslim terrorists. And so one day as he was praying and walking down the street, a building was blown up. And the cops came over and arrested him that crime, thinking he was a Muslim terrorist. And so they put him in prison with Muslim terrorists. And he praised God, because he was like, God has answered my prayer. Not only do I get to share the gospel with these terrorists, but I get to do it in the safety where they have no weapons. So he didn't even try to get released. He was like, this is it. This is the message that God has given me. I have the opportunity to share the gospel. So how about you? Paul can share it in prison. You share the gospel at work, with your family, with friends. Are you striving to, to share the gospel? Paul closes the letter with a farewell. He knew and loved this church, so he doesn't leave them with all this theology and application, but also gives them a loving goodbye so that you also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. 
So Tychicus was going to be the deliverer of this letter. He probably read the letter. And then he was to also give them more information on what was happening with Paul. He didn't want to leave them hanging. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to peace be to the brothers with love and faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So we've taken five months to walk through Ephesians, and we kept returning to this idea that the truths found in the first three chapters are the game changers. When we struggle, when we believe lies, we need to return to these truths. So to finish this series, I want to reread the first three chapters. And as I read, you can read along with me if you want, but I'd actually encourage you, put away your Bible for a second. If you remember, the the original audience wouldn't have read along. They would have sat and they would have listened. So I want you to sit and I want you to listen and I want you to look for the truths of who you are in Christ. What he has done for you. It is only through these truths that you will be able to live to be the masterpiece, the original work of art that he created you to be. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him 
as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, one, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men other, in other generations, but as it, it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, 
which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Dear Lord, it is so difficult for us to grasp the truths that we just read. that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing, that you are working with an immeasurable power on our behalf. And we pray that although we can't comprehend all of it, truths, no matter what lies come toward us. In your name we pray.